And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620, or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com or Google Play, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. Today we got a lot to talk about. We're going to update you on some uh, news out of South Carolina, news out of North Carolina as we see uh, restrictions on abortions uh, be passed. And it's interesting because we, we've gone from uh, the state of Florida that became a destination state for abortion after Roe was overturned. And uh, they had a 15-week ban, but 98% of all abortions were happening prior to 15 weeks in the state of Florida. Ron DeSantis and the legislature passed uh, a bill, uh, a six-week ban on abortion. And then North Carolina became a destination state for abortion after Roe was overturned, and a lot of Tennesseans were driving across the border to North Carolina to receive an abortion. Well, in the state of North Carolina, the legislature passed uh, a abortion restriction. I believe it was 12 weeks, and then the governor vetoed that uh, piece of legislation. And then the legislature, this is how fun politics is, then the legislature goes back and overrides the veto, so now there's a, an abortion ban uh, that will take effect in July in the state of North Carolina. I believe it's a 12-week ban. The state of South Carolina is also making some changes um, as they are, uh, they finally got to a place of seeing uh, abortion restricted. So South Carolina just passed a bill protecting babies with a heartbeat. The heartbeat bill is now just one vote away from being sent to the desk of the governor. And so we, we, we are starting to see more and more states make a move. And, and that's where the reason I bring that up is because it's been interesting since the midterms, since the midterm elections where we saw uh, we thought we were going to have a, a huge red tsunami. Uh, we thought conservatives were going to win in a big way across the country. Uh, they didn't. That, that didn't happen. We saw uh, constitutional amendments and state constitutional amendments uh, be, be fail when it came to restricting abortion or or taking abortion out of the constitution of, of some states, even even super conservative states. And so there was this belief system in the political class of, look, you can't get too pro-life. You know, we, we, we saw Roe overturn. We can't get too pro-life. We need to be careful here. We need, we need to be careful. You, you saw Blake Masters in Arizona who was running for Senate in the primary said, I'm super pro-life, pro-life from conception. And then he wins the primary and he comes out and says, we need a 15-week ban. And so it appeared as if, look, we're, we're trying to compromise. We're trying to uh, coalesce. We're trying to just get votes. And, and the problem I have with that is that is election, putting election over conviction. And so if you find yourself in a place of going, well, you know, I, I do... I do support life from conception, and I believe life begins at conception, but I really want to win this election. So, you know, I'll, I'll compromise some of that. And this happens on the right and the left. Now, now, let's be real, though. The, the left is all in when it comes to abortion. They, they want to see abortion uh, all the way up to nine months, no matter the reason, and they want taxpayers to pay for it. But on the right, what we're having on the, with conservatives is you have folks going, uh, I believe life begins at conception. I, I believe that we should do all we can to restrict abortion. And then you have some folks going, but, but let's not, let's not go too far. We don't want to alienate folks. 
We don't want to alienate certain voters. Or in the case of former President Trump, you have him coming out and actually saying the reason we lost the midterms is because of the pro-lifers. He said that. Now, he's tried to backtrack that. He's tried to pull back his comments. But then he's attacked Ron DeSantis in Florida for going too far. He, Trump's words were too harsh when it comes to abortion and restricting abortion. But, but let, me, let me give you some analysis. The overturning of Roe was, was monumental, one of the biggest court decisions uh, since I've been alive. It, it, it righted a wrong, a wrong-headed decision in 1973 that gave us abortion on demand across this country that was, that was pulled out of thin air. It's not in the Constitution. They claimed it was. So we, we saw the largest court decision, overturning of Roe, happen during the, the presidency of President Trump. We got that because the, the, we were able to appoint, the president was able to appoint Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. That's why. Now, we also got that because of activists and because of the Lord engaging and, and, and allowing for certain things to happen and certain appointments to happen. But, but look, that decision happened under President Trump. Those justices were appointed by President Trump. So you can't run away from that. Just from a political optic standpoint, you can't run away from what happened on June 24, 2022. President Trump's presidency will always be tied to the overturning of Roe. It will always be tied to the Dobbs decision, period. President Trump's presidency will always be tied to the appointment of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. It will always be tied to that, period. You cannot run away from that. And so in this mindset or in this thought process of, of, well, you're being too harsh when it comes to restricting abortion, or, look, we got Roe overturned, now just stop. Now stop putting in restrictions. Or, or look, we're, we're never going to win another election if y'all keep pushing this abortion issue. Or if you keep pushing state constitutional amendments to the right to life. Look, you, you can't run away from it. And, and what Roe being overturned did was allow for states to do what states are doing. Now, do I think that, that certain states kind of went uh, a little far in trying to get constitutional amendments passed? I don't think they went too far in their conviction. I would be all for the conviction. But, but the thought that maybe those would pass, maybe, maybe that wasn't a good thought or the right thought. The way this needs to be done is the way states have done it. The state of Tennessee, the state of Florida with the six-week ban, the state of North Carolina with the 12-week ban, even in a hostile environment in North Carolina, even where the governor would veto that legislation, and then the legislature to step back up and say, well, we don't care if you vetoed it, we're going to override your veto. And now the state of South Carolina, even with the hostile environment, as those on the left in the state of South Carolina tried to put a 100 amendments into the six-week heartbeat bill there in South Carolina. What they were trying to do was make it so convoluted that the, ultimately the, the pro-lifers would give up and stop trying to pass the bill. And thankfully, the pro-lifers didn't do that. 
That takes conviction. And I'm just going to put all my cards on the table. I would lose every election from here forward if it meant abortion was outlawed. Period. I would lose every election moving forward to get Roe overturned. That's conviction, folks. So, so what's going to be our motivating factor? Conviction or elections? Who would you rather have leading? Somebody leading because of conviction or because of the next election? Because look, if, if it's about winning elections, we're going to twist ourselves like pretzels. We're going to change positions. We're not going to be, uh, we're not going to have conviction on the issue of life or conviction on certain things. It's, well, you know, however the wind is blowing that day. And we've seen that in politics since the beginning. Just look back in the 90s and the way people viewed marriage. Now how do we view marriage? Even people on the left would say, Hillary Clinton said, Barack Obama said, marriage is between one man and one woman. And as soon as the political wind shifted, what did they say? And then we got what we got here today in our culture. Why? Because it's not about conviction. Now they have conviction. But oftentimes it's how the, how the political winds are blowing and how the shifts are happening. And so as we think about what this means, with, with especially for Tennessee. So if you live in Tennessee and you're thinking about our bordering states, and where people can go to get abortions. We now have North Carolina, South Carolina, the state of Florida making changes. That's a good thing. It doesn't mean it's over, but that's a good thing. They're moving in the right direction. What that also tells you, if you're, if you're concerned about elections, is we have a number of legislators that are willing to stand on conviction. We have a number of legislators that are willing to say, now we need this piece of legislation. I spoke in the state of North Carolina just a, a few weeks ago, and there were legislators in the room. And I'm proud that, that some of those legislators were a part of overriding the veto of the governor. That's a positive move. That's moving in the right direction. The last thing we need to do is tamp down the conviction. The last thing we need to do is throw pro-lifers under the bus. Pro-lifers are a large voting block, a very vocal voting block. And pro-lifers are one-issue voters. And pro-lifers are moved by conviction. So we applaud what has happened in, in South Carolina and what has happened in North Carolina and what has happened in Florida and what has happened in Tennessee and what continues to happen in a number of states across this country. And, and, and we need... If politicians are going to say they are pro-life, that requires something of them. And I want them to be convictionally pro-life, not just legislatively pro-life, not just uh, how can I win an election pro-life. I want them to be convictionally pro-life. I want them to fill it to their core. You know, and I, I see a number of people saying, look, we're going to have to. We're going to have to start t stop talking about 
abortion, and we're going to have to, you know, be be find some gray area, find some middle ground when it comes to abortion, and find some compromise when it comes to gender and 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 trans issues and and marriage. And no, no, there are some some things and some issues where we can find middle ground. You know, maybe that's the environment. Maybe that's taxes. Maybe that's social services in our communities. And then there are going to be other areas where there is no middle ground. There is no compromise. When it comes to the issue of abortion, who's always asked to compromise? Pro-lifers. The abortion industry will never compromise. There's not one abortion restriction they would support. Not one. Not one. You, You add exceptions into legislation, they don't support that. Because they want abortion on demand. You say, okay, well, second and third trimester restrictions, they don't support that because they want abortion on demand. And so, of course, they don't support heartbeat bills and, uh, or outright bans like we have in the state of Tennessee. But who's always asked to compromise? It's the pro-lifers. We're the ones that are asked to backpedal. We're the ones that are asked to put our convictions on the shelf. We're the ones that are asked to throw our values out the window. We're the ones that are asked to, hey, leave God out of the voting box. We're the ones that are asked to, hey, when you're debating the issue of abortion, you, you, got, you can't use the Bible. You can't use the Word of God. Now, they can use the Bible and the Word of God, and they can twist it and, and, and make it fit whatever narrative they're wanting to push. But, but me and you, we have to leave it on the shelf. And so the question is, are we led by conviction or are we led by the next set of elections, the next midterms, the next presidency, the next set of Supreme Court justices? And then when we see success, when we see the ball move down the field, are we going to own it and continue to step forward? Or are we going to go, Okay, okay, we got to, you know, don't be too harsh with legislation. You see, my hope is that we're led by our convictions. Because convictions is what's going to move the ball down the field. We'll be back. Well, that's a good one. That's old Diamond Rio. Meet in the middle. Man, that's good stuff. 90s country. I believe that's what we're going to hear in eternity. When we get to heaven, 90s country, you're like, that's terrible theology. Maybe, uh, but it's good stuff. It's good stuff. A lot of Diamond Rio, George Strait, Garth Brooks, you know, uh, good stuff. Uh, as, we, as we continue the conversation today, I now want to look at, there's a piece over at uh, World Opinions, which is a, uh, it's a, it's a, great, a great resource, <clears throat> and the title is called The Necessary Politics of the Church. And then the subtitle is churches must be political if they hope to keep from doing politics, which is interesting. It certainly makes you want to go and dive deep. Uh, The writer is Miles Smith. But I want to go through this in conjunction with what we just talked about when it comes to conviction, when it comes to how how do Christians, how do gospel people navigate the culture? How do gospel people navigate politics? How do we navigate what we are seeing in front of us? 
Uh, and this piece says, churches are not merely spiritual institutions, just as Christians are not merely spiritual beings. Throughout the history of the Christian church, Christians and their churches have played a role within society. Ever since Christ told his followers to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, individual Christians have understood they have certain duties and responsibilities, not only to other Christians, but to the political orders. Christians should be law-abiding citizens, and abiding by law in a democratic political order makes Christian citizens political actors, whether they like it or not. Likewise, churches must engage the political order, whether they like it or not. In order for churches to be able to fulfill their primary spiritual mission of declaring the gospel, there is a sense in which they must be political. Put simply, churches must be political, especially if they hope to keep from doing politics. The visible church was not and is not merely a spiritual institution. Brad Littlejohn helpfully notes that the church, quote, in its visible institutional dimension as a gathered congregation that must be organized, ritualized, and governed, is a part of the realm of what Luther calls polity. By polity, Luther meant that the church is part of the sphere of human authority, which it occupies in common with the more mundane concerns of the family and the civil magistrate. If a city passes a law mandating the maintenance of, for example, the historic architectural character of a neighborhood, the church must usually respect that law. A congregation with a hundred-year-old stone building cannot disobey the city ordinance and build a neon-colored glass skyscraper just because the church has a spiritual function of saving souls. Conversely, the church has a right to expect certain things of government. This does not mean Christians are asking for a state church. Far from it. American Protestants embraced disestablishment. Dismantling state churches was seen by Anglicans, Baptists, and Presbyterians as an appropriate step forward or toward the creation of a free society. Baptists, in particular, had experienced persecution in colonial North America and wanted rights of conscience protected. Nonetheless, those same Protestants, including Baptists, also believed that free society functioned best and that human society flourished most under a government that upheld a basically Christian moral and social order. American Protestants believed that the church and government governed different realms, but that religion had a political effect and purpose. Religion, faith, formed the minds and morals of American citizens so they could carry out their civil duties and purposes. Early Republic Baptists, firmly committed to religious liberty, simultaneously worked with church and state to educate citizens and to make the citizenry of the American Republic pious and virtuous. Baptist pastor and historian Obi Tyler Todd noted that Isaac Bacchus, a vehement enemy of state churches and a champion of religious liberty, nonetheless believed in this sweet harmony between religion and the civil government. Bacchus argued the teaching of the Bible and religious documents in public schools, and Todd noted, bristled at the thought of a more secular America where Christianity was removed from the public square. In our own day, some evangel evangelicals want their churches to do politics as its primary mission. Understandable, fears about secularization and the sexual revolution have left Christians scarred and convinced that only by politicizing their worship and mission can they save themselves. This has led to crass partisan affiliations with partisan politicians and the debasing of the church's inherently spiritual mission. But the church does have a political function. And that function is achieved through education, worship, and the proclamation of the word of God. The church's public witness will be political. The real question is whether that public witness is faithful or unfaithful. Now, that's something to think about. And, and, and look, we talk about the political realm quite a bit on this show. 
But but what I hope you understand is, although I talk about that quite a bit, our supreme focus, our supreme priority is not politics. But also, when things go south in our culture, the last thing the church needs to do, the last thing gospel people need to do is sit back and not engage. It is important that we clarify. It is important that we uh, proclaim the good news of the gospel. Even our founder said this constitution is made for a good and godly people. And, and, and to the point, even when as far as saying that without good and godly people, without that framework, without that bar being set, we're not sure how great this constitution is going to work. So the more we take God out of institutions, the more we take authority out of institutions, the more we lower the bar when it comes to our culture, the more we redefine terms when it comes to marriage, when it comes to gender, the further away we are from what we're doing. And so what happens If you're not engaged in those things, and when that ball starts rolling down the hill and it picks up momentum, and then you enter into 2023 and you look around you and you go, oh, no. Well, then then you have to further engage. And so what the the article was saying was, look, if we want to stay out of politics, we're going to have to be involved somewhat and hopefully prevent that snowball effect. And we're seeing that everywhere. You don't have to stand in the pulpit. Like I spoke at a church this past weekend. I don't have to stand there and tell people who to vote for. No, that's not my job. I'm not a political pundit. I'm not working for a campaign. I don't have to tell you who to vote for. But what I do need to do is say, here's God's standard. Here's how the Bible defines marriage. Here's how the Bible defines gender. Here's how the Bible defines sex. Here's how the Bible tells a dad to be a dad. Here's how the Bible tells a man to be a husband. Here's how the Bible tells a wife to be a wife and a woman to be a mom. These are things that matter. Here's how a society is to function. Here's the value you're supposed to place on life. You see, if we run away from the authority of Scripture, and we act as if, look, we can, we can change our society and culture through, say, science, or we can change our society and culture through politics, we're missing the point. Again, it goes back to what we talked about in the first segment. Are we moved by conviction or by election? Do I care more about the way you vote than I do about your eternity? The reality is if we can get people to understand their eternity, if we can get people to understand the God of the universe that loves them, if we can get people to see the gospel, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that we needed a mediator and God sent that mediator in Jesus and Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. And then three days later, to show that he conquered death, he rose from the dead to save our souls from damnation. If we can preach that message, guess what, folks? The politics will take care of itself. The definitions will take care of itself. 
So we engage in the process. We engage in the civics of it all. But we don't run away from the truth. I don't want a bunch of political shills in the pulpit. I don't want them stumping and campaigning for politicians. I simply want them to preach the truth. The rest will take care of itself. Be bold in preaching the truth. Speak out when the culture goes against the God of the universe. That's how we prevent ourselves from becoming political shields. We'll be back. So as we continue today, look, over the last man, a few months, I guess, I've been talking uh, quite a bit about mental health and depression. And the reason I do that, this show is designed to discuss life issues. Uh, of course, we spend the majority of our time talking about the abortion issue and, and what are we doing to protect life legislatively? What are we doing to protect life via the pregnancy center? What are we doing to protect life in, in all sorts of ways? But also, if, if we want to truly be a, a people that stand for life and, and understand that life has value, then we have to look at our neighbors and, and listen to what they're telling us. Now, we've done that, and in, in, you know, I've focused on studies that are looking at teenagers, teenagers that are telling us they're depressed, teenagers that are telling us they're sad, teenagers that are telling us uh, they're miserable and things are going terrible for them. Uh, but we also, there, there's some new information out. Uh, there's a piece over at Gallup uh, from May 17th about U.S. depression rates now reaching new highs. The percentage of U.S. adults who report having been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime has reached 29%, nearly 10 points higher than 2015. 10 points higher than 2015. The percentage of Americans who currently have or are being treated for depression has also increased to 17.8%, up about seven points over the same period. Both rates are the highest recorded by Gallup since it began measuring depression using the current form of data collection in 2015. The most recent results obtained February 28th of 2023 are based on 5,167 U.S. adults surveyed by Webb as part of the Gallup panel, a probability-based panel of, of about 100,000 adults across all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Respondents were asked, quote, has a doctor or nurse ever told you that you have depression? And do you currently have or are you currently being treated for depression? Both metrics are part of the ongoing Gallup National Health and Wellbeing Index. Rates among women, young adults, black and Hispanic adults rising fastest. Over one-third of women, 36.7%, now report having been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime, compared to 20% of men, and their rate has risen at nearly twice the rate of men since 2017. Over a third of women report having been diagnosed with depression. Those aged 18 to 29... 34.3%, 30 to 44 years old, 34.9% have significantly greater depression diagnosis rates in their lifetime than those older than 44. Women, 23.8%, and adults aged 18 to 29, 24.6%, also have the highest rates of current depression or treatment for depression. These two groups, up 6.2 and 11.6 percentage points respectively, as well as adults ages 30 to 44, have the fastest rising rates compared with 2017 estimates. Lifetime depression rates 
are also climbing fast among black and Hispanic adults and have now surpassed those of white respondents. Historically, white adults have reported marginally higher rates of both lifetime and current depression. So what does this mean? Alarming rates of depression are not unique to the U.S. globally. Nearly 4 in 10 adults ages 15 and older either endure significant depression or anxiety themselves or have a close friend or family member who suffers from it. Other Gallup research has estimated that 22% of Northern American adults have experienced depression or anxiety so extreme that they could not continue regular daily activities for two weeks or longer. Similar to a global rate of 19% in the matching estimates found in Western Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa and South Asia. Clinical depression has been slowly rising in the U.S. prior to COVID-19 pandemic, but has jumped notably in its wake. Social isolation, loneliness, fear of infection, psychological exhaustion, particularly among frontline responders such as healthcare workers, elevated substance abuse and disruptions in mental health services have all likely played a role. While experiences of significant daily loneliness have subsided in the past two years amid widespread vaccinations and a slow return to normalcy, elevated loneliness experiences during the pandemic likely played a substantive role in increasing the rates of a longer-term chronic nature of depression. Young adults, in turn, are more likely to be single and to report loneliness, particularly so during the pandemic. They also need more social time to boost their mood than other older adults, something directly impacted by COVID-19. Daily experiences of sadness, worry, and anger, all of which are closely related to depression, are highest for those under 30 and those with lower income levels. Look, folks, th this is a cry for help from our people. And, and I've said it before, we, we are, there is no better time to be alive in the United States of America than today with everything we have at our fingertips. Oftentimes, the poorest of the poor in this country live substantially better than the poorest of the poor around the world. You, you want to read a book, you have it at your fingertip. You, you want to search something, you have it on your phone. Literally anything you can search and find the answer to. You want to get to work, you can. They're actually telling us right now that we have more jobs than people. We have social services that are helping people. We have school systems. We have churches. We have private schools. We have homeschools. We have all of these things. And my fear is because everything is at our fingertip. That in, in our desire to progress to a place of, of ease... We, we've struggled to figure out how to combat loneliness, depression. Social media came on the scene to help create relationships, and what it has done is created a relationship with our phone or with dopamine hits. And so then we feel lonely because we don't know anybody on a personal level. Younger people now are not going on dates. They're not seeking a spouse. They're not desiring to have children. Why? Because they're, they're scared of what that means. They don't want to leave the ease at which they find themselves in. They, they are afraid of the climate. And they don't want to bring kids into the world. Maybe a generation has, has set the bar so low for what marriage could be or should be that, that they don't want any part of it. We now have cyberbullying and, and all these things that, that happen. 
and, and keeping up with the Joneses. You, you get on social media and you see what somebody else has and, and you want what they have, but you feel like you can't achieve what they have. And, and in reality, oftentimes you don't even know what they're going through. And I'm not calling for us to live back in the homestead days, although there's days where I long for that. But, but I, would, I would look at my granddad, who died when he was 96 years old, and he got up every morning at 4 o'clock. He went and milked cows. He went and worked in the field. He was so exhausted when he got home. He ate supper, milked cows again, then he came home and ate supper, and then he went to bed, and he did it all over again the next day. Now, for some, they, they say, that's, that sounds terrible. I, I don't want anything to do with that. He didn't travel the world. He didn't... He didn't see this or see that, but, but he lived a fulfilling life. He put food on the table. He provided for his family. He more than provided for his family, financially, with love, with, with leadership. But he worked his hind end off. And so there, there are moments where we have to see what, what would be most beneficial in these scenarios. Are, are these... Are these people that are depressed bored? Are they bored in their current job? Are they bored at home? Now, some of us need to be bored because we, we have so many things coming at us. But, but oftentimes what we're seeing is we are so connected virtually and, and through our phones that we are actually creating a society that is disconnected. So when you walk through a mall, when you walk through uh, any kind of busy area, most people are on their phones, looking down, not looking up. And so I, I don't have the answer for this apart from the gospel of Jesus. But the legislature is not going to have an answer for this. Court systems are not going to have an answer for this. Society, the culture, is not going to have an answer for this. Why do I know that? Because society and culture, in many ways, are saying there, there, there's a cry for help from our women, from our men, from our young people. They are crying out for help. And instead of treating, instead of diving deeper into that, what are we saying? We are saying, go be you. Go do whatever it is you want to do. Be the best you can be. Be, be whatever makes you happy. And folks, what we're finding is what they are going and doing isn't making them happy because something is missing. See, we're, we're all being told, the culture is, is telling our people and telling you to go live your truth. Oh, you, you, is your marriage struggling? Well, then get out of it. Oh, you don't like those kids? Then get rid of them. Oh, you don't want to be pregnant? Then get rid of it. Oh, you don't want to be a woman? Then be a man. Oh, you don't want to be a man? Be a woman. Oh, you don't want to be with just one guy? Be with many. Oh, you don't want to just be with one woman? Be with many. And then we wonder why we have a mental health crisis in our society. And in every study, every data point that I've pointed to over the last few months, have said we saw a bit of a rise pre-pandemic. But it fell off, it just went exponentially higher 
since 2020. And so when I tell you the culture doesn't have an answer, the culture actually made this worse. Legislatures made this worse. Politics made this worse. Do you understand? And, and so if, if we want to seek out a remedy, the only remedy is going to be the great healer. And that we would live for something outside of ourselves. Not, not go and live my best truth, but go and live the truth. The truth that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning, love somebody else. Live for somebody else. Sacrifice for others. Serve others. But you know, a culture is not going to tell us to do that. Pray for our people. Pray for our culture. We'll be back. As we finish up today, look, as I was talking about the, the mental health crisis that we find ourselves in, I don't want you to hear me as saying that, that we don't need to uh, maybe talk to someone, that we don't need to, sometimes medication cannot help. Like All of those things, look, those are common graces that, that we need to find ourselves in. If you're in a tough spot, you do need to talk to somebody. And oftentimes we, we kind of go inward and we, we don't want to talk to anybody. We don't want to talk to somebody about our anxiety our worries, our, our depression, or maybe we're not feeling great today, or we're just, we've, we felt unhappy for the last few days. We need to talk to people, certainly. And so I would encourage you to do that. My fear is, though, we've created in our culture, and when I say the culture, I say at times we are, we are seeing a, a narrative that, that permeates everything, that the culture doesn't have an answer because the culture at the same time is going, Go live and do whatever you want to live and do. The culture is saying you can't have your baby and your dreams. The culture is saying you, you need to live your best truth. Do whatever it is you want to do. Do what makes you happy. And, and what our society is saying is, look, I understand culture, secular folks, that you're telling me that, but what I'm telling you is I'm not happy. What I'm telling you is, is I, I, I struggle with anxiety. What I'm telling you is living my best truth right now is not the answer for me. And so the culture's argument runs into itself. The culture says we have a mental health crisis. 30 plus percent of women are depressed and, and dealing with anxiety. And, 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 and the culture is also telling those women you, need, you can become a man. You see, that, that message doesn't resonate. And then we wonder why we are struggling the way we are struggling. And so if you are dealing with that today, I would simply say that your identity is not wrapped up in your past. Your identity is not wrapped up in, in a bad relationship, a broken relationship. Your identity is not wrapped up in a past abortion. Your identity is not wrapped up in addiction. Your identity is wrapped up in the God of the universe that created you, and you bear his image. You bear his image. You do. You have value. You matter. You were loved by the God of the universe. And I know for some of us, it's like, well, that doesn't even make sense. I, who is this God of the universe? I'm telling you. 
My desire for you, my desire for me, my desire for my kids, my desire for my spouse, my desire for family, is not that they would do what makes them happy. Because if I seek out my happiness, I'm going to do a lot of bad things to a lot of people. You see, my goal is not simply my happiness. My goal is seeking out what God would have for me. How am I going to love another today? How am I going to serve another today? How am I going to raise my kids today? How am I going to love my wife today? How am I going to be a better human today than I was yesterday? What does that look like? How am I going to tell people about Jesus today? You see, when we talk about all that we talk about on the show, and today we've covered legislation out of North Carolina and South Carolina and Florida. We've covered uh, a debate back and forth between President Trump and a Governor DeSantis. We've, we've covered mental health crisis. We've covered, we've covered church and politics. But the answer to all of that is going to be found in the God of the universe, in his word. That's what holds authority. So, yeah, I can listen to a self-help book. I can listen to a, a self-help podcast. I can, I can read about how I can be fit and healthy and, and do all those things. How can I be a better leader? All of those things are important. But you're not going to find rest in a gym. You're not going to find rest in your office. You're not going to find rest and peace in simply eating better. You're not going to find rest and peace in, in that job that you just think will fix everything. No, you're, you're going to find rest and peace in the God of the universe. In the Jesus that, that carried the weight of our sin. So when we find those moments where we feel like every, the walls are, are, are closing in and, and things are getting difficult and things are getting tough and, and where do I go and I would just encourage you to go read Psalm 139. Now, Psalm 139, many of us are like, oh, that's the pro-life verse. You, you needed us together in mother's womb. But what David is saying there is, no matter where I go, I can't hide from you, God. Even in the depths of despair, you are there. And I want you to know that he ain't going anywhere. Rest in him today. We'll talk to you next time.